0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Hash It Out. I am your co-host, Debra, and here with me today are Janae and Chelsea. In this episode, we are going to talk about Black Lives Matter. To begin this discussion, we first want to discuss the history of Black Lives Matter and how it got started. So Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi were the founders, and they created the Black-centered political will and movement building project known as Black Lives Matter. This activist movement began as a hashtag after George Zimmerman was acquitted in the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, a black teenager killed in Florida in July 2012. The movement became more widely known and popularized after the deaths in 2014 of Eric Garner in Staten Island and Michael Brown in Ferguson. Neither of the police involved in their deaths were indicted, meaning neither were formally charged with the crime. The space that hashtag Black Lives Matter held and continues to hold helped propel the conversation around the state-sanctioned violence experienced, particularly highlighted were the egregious ways in which black women specifically black trans women are violated hashtag black lives matter was developed in support of all black lives ongoing local and national protests and other actions often sparked by deaths of other unarmed african americans have brought the black lives matter movement to the public consciousness and conversation
1: i guess i'll just say that um, i personally remember when the eric gardner um, murder happened i was a freshman in high school And I was attending an all-white school at that time. And I remember that um, I wore a shirt in his remembrance and was teased about it. So I definitely, that's a touchy, that was a touchy time, 2014, when all these were happening and being brought to light. Um, I was only 14, so it was really awful. And then um, I definitely remember the Ferguson um, riots. Thanks, Deborah, for bringing that up.
2: One of the biggest things I think that is associated with Black Lives Matter when we hear the term is police brutality against black women and men. And I remember, like Janae, I remember when I when I was a freshman in high school when Michael Brown was killed. Um, even taking it back to 2012, I was a, I want to say I was in the sixth grade when uh, Trayvon Martin was killed. And I remember thinking, he's only five years older than me. All he wanted to do was get home. And you listen about this stuff in class. You read about this stuff in your textbooks and your history classes about black men and women being killed just specifically because of the color of their skin. But when you're actually living in those times and you can actually be able to one day tell your own children about that, it's, it's very surreal. Um, I even think about Drayshawn Reed being killed earlier this summer by IMPD. Um, And as we all know, his verdict came out um, November 10th, where they decided they were not going to indict uh, Dejean Mercer for his, for for Sean's murder. And because I went to school with this individual, you, even with Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland, in which we still stand with their families to this day um, in the name of justice for all of their lives. Um, but for Drayshawn, I think it hit a little closer to home because this is somebody that I went to school with. Like, I knew this individual. And so when you have something like that happen, you actually start to look really deeply into what's even going on in your own hometown like this happened in Indianapolis, Indiana. So you actually start looking at the different um institutional racisms that happen even in your own state and you you start to question things and you start to get angry. And I know for me, Ahmad Arbery happening and then George Floyd and Brianna Taylor and then I think with D'Rayn, it just set off a wave of emotions for me. Um I was sad because of all the black lives we were losing. I was Angry is not even the word. I rate at the constant, constant cycle that we were seeing, and it was like it was back to back to back. And even more so, I started having hatred in my heart for for white people. Let's let's just put it out there. Because I was continually seeing this in, these injustices. So yeah, we want to talk about that really quickly. That was
1: really heavy. Um I remember watching the video um, of the officer joking around after they shot him, and I just can't believe that even with that video evidence that millions of people saw, they still will not indict. And um, I agree that it just hits close to home. Like, you know, you hear about
2: it and, you know, Ferguson or... I don't know if there's riots in Chicago. There are definitely some in Chicago police brutality against specifically black men. But I think the reason why it's not talked about as much, which is tragic in itself, is because there is this stigma around the black community. Well, y'all kill y'all own in places like Chicago, in Philly, in Atlanta, in Inglewood, in Compton. Y'all kill y'all own. So why does it matter if a police officer kills you? And I think that that's. The biggest tragic thing, these communities and where violence is so high, black on black crime, which is another topic that we're going to get into later in this podcast, because I hate that saying. Um, But like you were saying, um, those riots, I'm not even going to call them riots. Those acts of demonstration are not talked about um, when it's a black man that is killed by a police officer in these, um, these cities because of the stereotype.
1: It just really makes me upset. And then just to go back a little bit and drop some statistics in there. In the United States, police kill up to six times more black people than white people.
0: And I just think that that's extremely high. You're right, Janae. That is an incredibly like high statistic. And you know, police kill a disproportionate amount of black people. So if you look at the U.S. population, about 13% of people are black. Mm-hmm. But why is it that of the people killed by police, 31% are black? Why is it that when... There's people killed by the police while not attacking. It's 39% of black people. Those numbers don't add up when you have 63% of the population being white. Why is it like that? Obviously, there's an issue there, but one that we don't want to address, one that people don't like to talk about. Why? Because it makes them uncomfortable.
2: I think another thing, and I'm glad you brought that up, Deborah, I think another thing that people don't want to talk about is the... um, the saying Blue Lives Matter and why that came about. I wanna put out there that my first point about Blue Lives Matter, I wanna put out there is Blue Lives Matter is an occupation. Being a police officer is an occupation. You chose to go to school for this, you chose to put on that uniform, you choose to do that every single day. You didn't you weren't born a police officer. I just wanna put that out there. Me, standing right here right now as a 20 year old woman, I was born black. I did not choose to be black. I did not ask the Lord to be black. I did not ask John and Felicia, who are my parents to be black. This was not a choice for me. This was who, how I was born. Blue lives matter, I want to say is a determinant and it takes away from the actual fact that we are saying black lives matter because clearly our state, clearly our country is not seeing that black lives actually matter because we're seeing this continuous cycle Of violence from police officers against black people.
0: Yeah, and I also just wanna say Black Lives Matter is not confined to the US. Black Lives Matter recognizes and affirms the sanctity of all black lives everywhere in the world. For example, Nigeria. Following the murder of an unarmed civilian by the Special Anti Robbery Squad or SARS unit of the Nigerian police, Young people across Nigeria have held protests, denouncing years of brutality, torture, abductions, and killings. And the demonstrations mark one of the largest Nigerian protest movements in generations. And this is just an example. There is a global movement for black lives afoot. So from the protesters in Cameroon who faced down water cannons and tear gas, and the unrest caused by the genocide in the Democratic Republic of Congo, to the fierce woman in Namibia demanding, hashtag, shut it all down. To the brave Zimbabweans campaigning for the release of a student leader who was detained for protesting, the call for Black lives to matter is a rallying cry for all Black lives striving for liberation, and we stand
2: against all violence inflicted on all Black communities. I'm so, 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 so happy that you brought up that Black Lives Matter is not just a national thing. It is a international movement. And I want to put this out there before I say anything else. I love my community so much. I love being black and I love the black people in my community. But I am the first one to say that we still have so much work to do as a community. And I think one of the things that I'm not going to say angered me, but frustrated me is that we were so upset with our white counterparts when everything was happening during the summer and- A lot of people who we considered friends, who we considered allies that were non-black people weren't saying anything. And then when we saw this injustice happening in Nigeria and the Democratic of the Congo and Zimbabwe, a lot of people from my community were silent. And it frustrated me because the people who are being silent about the stuff happening in Africa, that makes us no better than our white counterparts who didn't say anything here in the U.S. Um, So I'm so glad you mentioned that because. Black Lives Matter. Yes, this movement started here in the United States, but if you think about it, if we're taking a history lesson, Black Lives Matter mattered in the United States in the 1960s, but also mattered in the 1990s in the in South Africa when we were protesting the release of Nelson Mandela. So I'm really glad that you you mentioned that Black Lives Matter is not a national thing; it is international because Black Lives Matter because injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. So I'm um, really glad that you mentioned that, though, Deborah. And just to
1: dive a little bit deeper into what both Chelsea and Deborah were saying the reason why we say all black lives matter is to include those left out because of homophobia and transphobia that runs deep in the black community unfortunately and like Chelsea said I'm very proud um, me as a black woman to also be a part of the black community but I agree that we have a lot of problems that we definitely need to fix and the homophobia and transphobia is one of the biggest ones Saying all black lives matter means black, queer, trans folk, all black people, part of the LGBTQ plus community, all black lives along the gender spectrum. And just to add a little bit more, I also want to say that black women matter as well. A lot. A lot of the time when we hear about these. police brutality um murders and things like that it's usually black men and we don't really hear about the black women the only woman that i can think of that is a name that we know is sandra bland um i just want to talk about a case really quick where there were six black trans women uh found dead in nine days back to back nine days brutally murdered nobody knows their names nobody knows I just think that um, when we're saying black lives
2: matter, we also have to include um, women as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you, you mentioned that about black women. Um, and let me start off once again by saying I love my black men. I was raised by a black father. I have black brothers. I have black nephews and cousins and uncles. I love my black men. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because we... There was a reason why there was a hashtag created this summer saying "Protect Black Women at All Costs" because we don't do that. And like I said, I will reiterate this to the day I die. I love my community, but I am the first one to say there is so much work that needs to be done within our own community. I even think about the situation with Megan Thee Stallion and and Tory Lanes. I'm not gonna. I wasn't there, so I'm not gonna say nothing. And I'm not gonna say what my position is because I don't want anybody dragging me. But I I think of this woman and how actively she fights for the Black community. And I saw a lot of that this summer. She actively fights for our community and there was this this anger towards her for speaking her truth and it confused me because it was like we shout constantly protect black women, protect black women. But where was this protection for Megan? Regardless of whether you believe her or not, it was the transphobic comments about her being a man or she's a liar and she's doing anything for clout or a victim blaming her even. And it angered me as a black woman because it was like, where's this protection that we're always talking about? We love our black women, We protect our black women. Where's the protection? Now, regardless of whether you believe her or not, the comments that were made against her, especially as a black woman, Not only did it bother me, but it disgusted me.
0: Not only is that, you know, you're going back on what you said, but you also got to think about how that affects someone, like mental health in the black community, where you're like, I have the support of my community, but then you don't. And so mental health is already a taboo subject in this community with um, 13.4% of the U.S. identifying as African-American. Out of that, 16% reported having mental illness within the past year. That's 7 million people.
2: Um, yeah, I'm. I'm glad you mentioned that. Like you said, um, and I've, I've talked about this before on a different um, episode. Is that there are a lot of taboo subjects that we just don't talk about within our community, just because we just don't talk about them. And I think that's not just a. I think that's just a generational thing. Um, I know with my family, um, I have a anxiety disorder, and I've had it since I was 14 years old. And coming from a very conservative Christian household, especially a black conservative Christian household, just like mental illness you're going through a phase uh pray about it the lord to heal you and while i believe god can do anything some stuff is just like no this this is what i this is what i have this is what what i am um and mental health is one of those biggest one of the biggest taboo subjects that you just don't talk about in the black community and like you said the statistics for that 13.4% of the of people in the united states which is 46 million people identify as black and then out of that 46 million you have 7 million people that identify with a mental illness and most of the time out of that 7 million people you're only going to get a small percentage of those 7 million people that actually talk about it and actually acknowledge that they have one and one of the biggest contributors to that is socioeconomic status um is linked to people linked to mental health problems you know people who are impoverished homeless incarcerated or have substance use um problems are at risk for having poor mental health and black men are particularly concerned about the stigma. And I think the reason why it's not so much talked about, mental health is not so much talked about with black men is because of the stigma around them always having to be strong and always having to be the man of the house. And you can't be weak. Um, I remember my uncles used to tell my my cousins all the time, stop acting like a little fill in the blank, you know what I mean? Um, you know, stop being a little punk, like grow up, be a man. And it was always men don't cry, men don't show emotions. And I think that's where toxic masculinity comes in, because when we don't allow black men to show their emotions, we, we don't allow them to cry. When we tell them that you need to be a man and real men don't cry, real men don't show emotions, you get these mental health issues that are not acknowledged and then in turn cause very detrimental physical problems. I, mental health issues are very much so linked to physical health issues. Um, so yeah, that's that's just my little spiel. <laughs>
1: So Chelsea, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it really is a taboo um, topic in our community. And that's why I keep saying that we need um, more black therapists, more black psychiatrists, because when you see your people, um, I feel like when you see um, a black therapist or psychiatrist, you feel more comfortable, at least in my experience. Absolutely. And just like Chelsea, I also have an anxiety disorder. And growing up, it was always, well, you know, just just go sit down. go Just go calm down. Like, that's the entire point. Like, I can't calm down. That's why it's a disorder. So um, I definitely understand 100% where you're coming from. And it's definitely something that needs to be talked about more in our community. Community, And not just talked about more, but we need to advocate that you need to go get help. Like, it's, it's not... You're not crazy. It's not It's not weird. It's not lame. You just need to go to a therapist or um, something like that. So we just need to take off the
0: stigma of going to therapy as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I definitely agree with both of you guys because I see the same thing in the Latino community where mental health is not something that, ta- that we talk about. Mental health is not something that they see as an issue for people of color. When I when I hear people in the Latino community talking about mental health from like the older generations, they're saying, "Mental health, that's a white person problem. That's a made-up problem for white people. We don't have that. We don't do that. That does not affect us. You're just upset. You're not depressed. You you stop trying to be white." That's what I hear. "Stop trying to be white. You're not you don't have a mental illness. You're not crazy. You don't need a psychologist." And there's just this stigma, this this idea that that's all a psychologist is, is just for, for crazy people. And that's definitely not what it is. And so I think that also goes back to what you were saying, Janae, about representation. And representation is really important. If there were more you know, Latino or Latina psychologists or more black psychologists, maybe we'd be more willing to kind of talk to that or more comfortable going in there and discussing that with someone who knows the implications of our skin color skin color definitely has an impact on our mental health i think about like racial battle fatigue and how the constant you know microaggressions the fear of going out at night and walking on the street the fear of what the black lives matter movement is that we fear that our lives are not valued as much as those of people who are not you know people of color all of that fear it adds up so if anything, mental health in these black and brown communities is even more important because of everything that we carry on our shoulders since the day we are born.
2: And Now, Deborah, you brought up um, skin color, so I want to kind of take it in, a, um, in that direction. Um, colorism within the black community. One of the biggest things that I struggled with growing up was my skin complexion. Um, I grew up with um, lighter family members. Um, my grandmother um, is white passing. My mother is light skinned. Um, my, my father's a dark-skinned man, and so are my sisters and my brothers, um, But and a lot of the people on my father's side are dark-skinned, dark and brown-skinned uh, men and women, but then a lot of people on my mother's side are light-skinned men and women, and so for the longest time, me pretty much being around my mother's side of the family and not so much as my father's, I, I struggled being with them a lot. My younger cousins are Puerto Rican, white, and black, and lighter skin, very long, um, 3, 3B, three 3C hair. And then there was me um, who had 3C, 4A, dark skin. I'm not going to say overweight. I was fluffy, period. But I was the exact opposite of what my cousins were. And I would even have some of my family members be like, baby, you so pretty for a dark skinned girl. Are you so pretty for a brown skin girl? And it would just be like, What does that mean? And then even in the TV shows that I I saw as a kid, you always saw these lighter skin women. um, One of the shows that I grew up on, grew up on um, was a different world, which is a spinoff of the Cosby show. And I love that show because of the HBC representation because of the D9 organization representation. But one of the things that um, one of the episodes I remember was Kim, who was a medical student. She was a dark skinned woman. And there was this joke that her classmates were making. They were playing the dozens, which is this old school game where you joke on people, where you joke on people, but they were constantly making dark skin jokes. And it got to the point where she was angry because it was like, yo, what are you, what are you doing? You're equivalating dark skin to being ugly. And that was one of the biggest things for me is that I felt like, because I was not of lighter skin, because I didn't have this exotic look that so many entertainers use today that I was ugly. And I even think about now, um, the dark skin representation, we didn't get this, oh, I love dark skin women until we really started calling people out. Like, hey, you a colorist, bro. And we started canceling people. And so I'm very, very appreciative. One of the songs that I still listen to to this day, because it just gives me so much joy is Beyonce's brown skin girl, because it reminds me every day that I look in the mirror that I am beautiful, brown skin and all. And then there's always this thing of light skin versus dark skin that happens in our community and further divides us. You, we pit these, especially, especially when it comes to women, we pit women against each other because of their skin complexion. And let's just put this out there, let's not sugarcoat anything, and I'm grateful that this podcast doesn't do, doesn't do this, is that light-skinned women have always been favored. This can even go back to slavery when you saw darker-skinned women out in the fields and lighter-skinned women were put into the house to be house slaves. And that was because anything that was equivalent to, to white, closer to white, was better. I mean, you see that even now in our community that anything that's, let me put it this way, that mindset that was given during slavery has transcended over until generations these times. Um, and it's, it's just unfortunate that it has to be that way. Uh, one of the things that really hit home for me um, last year when we had the Tunnel of Oppression was the Colorism Room, because I remember being an actor in that room that I had to take a minute because it really started weighing on me. The poem that I was saying, it was like, this is my experience in a poem. And so, you know, it's unfortunate we already have a system that is divided amongst us. And then to have even these own problems in our own community that divides us even further, it's it's very, very unfortunate.
1: Uh, Chelsea, I just want to thank you for bringing up the tunnel of oppression room. I remember walking through last year and you were an amazing actor. You played the part so well. And never in my 19 years of life have I been able to put into words how I felt the colorism in the black community. And you did it so well.
0: So Chelsea, I also want to I want to thank you for, you know, bringing up this discussion of like light skin versus dark skin. And I want to go back to something you had said before about how um, white features are considered better. So, you know, as a Latina, I see that a lot in the Latino community where white features are nice, you know. And we, we had a whole episode about colorism in the Latinx community, so I don't want to go too far into it. But there's that whole idea that things that are related to black people are just seen as ugly or not as beautiful. And you see it in like telenovelas, which I'd be watching with my family growing up. And all of the actresses, our standard of beauty, they all had white features. You know, it's not until like recently that you're seeing representation of these um, actresses who have darker colored skin. And if they did have darker skin, they were maids, they were servants. You know, they were the uneducated person in the novella, and the show. It continues this stereotype that black people are stupid, that they're not as smart, that they're not as beautiful, and that's just not true. And as you said, like, going through a tunnel of oppression when I went through last year, you know, I was the only person in my group going through tunnel that ended up, you know, not passing the brown paper bag test. So I was put on the other side and I was just standing on my own in that room. And again, like that poem, it definitely applied because in my family, I am one of the darker skinned Latinos in our family. And again, I also grew up with my mom's side of the family most of the time. And I and I remember, as I mentioned on a previous episode, that one day when I was like six or seven, my cousin came up to me and she was like, you know what, Deborah? I think the reason you're ugly is because your dad is dark. And she told me, um, you know, I think that's, that's why I'm better than you because my dad wasn't as dark as yours is and your dad is just ugly and that's why you look the way you do. And like previously, like that's one of those moments that stood out to me because previously, my mom, they had always told me, oh, your skin is beautiful. They they would make jokes about, like, my skin, like, oh, you're, you're black, you're dark and all that. But I know that my mom did it lovingly because she always reminded me, don't listen to what they're saying. Your skin is beautiful. Be yourself. So it wasn't until, like, it, it had always been, like, you know, playful. Like, they were laughing um, with me, not at me. And so it wasn't until my cousin said that to my face that I was like, wait, excuse me, what? You know, because it was like the audacity i feel like that colorism it's just everywhere in like black and brown communities it's it's with people of color colorism is there and it's something that needs to be addressed it's an issue that needs to be fixed because again all skin colors are beautiful so if you can't even see that within our own communities how do we expect other communities to feel the same way
2: I also want to put this out there when we talk about All Black Lives Matter is that being black is not monolithic. There's not one way to just being black. There's not the pin of, oh, this is what a black person is. And that's what I love about my community is we continue to we continue to dispel this myth that there is one way of being black. Um, you see that in the LGBTQ plus community, you see that with black people who come from the suburbs or black people that come from quote unquote, the hood, you see that black people from black French people from Canada, or you see that with black people from the Caribbeans is that there's not just one way of being black. So even black people from, um, black people who are Afro Latina, Afro Latino, Afro Latino. Um, and that's another point that we'll get into later in the podcast, but I just want to put this out there that. There is no such thing as, oh, she's black, but she's not black, black. Or, oh, he's black, but he's not black, black. And I think one of the things that, one of my favorite shows growing up was First Prince of Bel-Air. And one of the things I think kind of bothered me um, in the show is that you had Carlton the cousin who was this preppy um, suburban kid and then you had Will from West Philadelphia and Will and his friends always had this thing of making fun of Carlton because he wasn't their standard of black and one of the things that always bothered me growing up as a kid is when my cousins or my friends would be like why do you talk white and then you have this stereotype that talking black means talking in Ebonics all the time or talking with not talking with bad grammar and now look when I'm with my friends totally different Chelsea um but then there's this thing where having just because I have good grammar doesn't mean I'm talking white because then you make this myth then you perpetuate the stereotype that black people can't have good grammar black people can't talk proper because that's white so just want to put that out there that black is not monolithic there's not just one specific way of being black
1: Thanks, Chelsea, for that. Um, Now I'm going to talk about racism as a spectrum, and I'm going to talk about medical discrimination. Millions of black people are affected by racial bias in healthcare. Black Americans die younger than white Americans, and they have a higher rate of death from a string of diseases, including heart diseases, stroke, cancer, asthma, and diabetes. By one measure, they are worse off than in the time of slavery. And then there is the black infant mortality rate, but I'll
2: let Chelsea talk about that. So the black infant mortality rate, so like babies who die before their first birthday, um, is more than two times higher for that of white babies. So there's 11.4 deaths per thousand live births for black than there is compared to 4.9 for whites. And then historians have estimated that in 1850 it was 1.6 times higher for blacks, so 304 per thousand versus. 217 for whites um, and going into that we talk about the mortality rate for black women for pregnant black women black women experience higher, higher mortality rates and they are three times three to four times more likely to experience a pregnancy related death than a white woman um, and many black women have a difficult time accessing the reproductive health care that meets that need so access to reproductive health care which helps women plan fam- plan their families improves the health outcomes for women and children and so you see that many black women lack access to quality contraceptive care and counseling. So, for example, um, a recent analysis in California of Californian women enrolled in Medicaid, black women were less likely than white or Latino women to receive postpartum contraception. And when they did receive it, they were less likely to receive a highly effective method. So basically what we see here is not only are the lives of black babies in danger but also we see that pregnant black women are in danger as well um and that just goes back to what janae said about medical discrimination which is why when we see these non-people of color making these racist jokes on twitter or instagram and they just happen to be enrolled in college and they're majoring in pre-med or pre-dental or whatever other medical stuff there is we're calling them out we're calling up your schools because these are our future doctors our future Dentists, our future healthcare professionals, and I don't want you operating on me if you feel some type of way about me being black. So yes, I'm going to call your school. Yes, I'm gonna get you kicked out of school because you're not gonna operate on me or my people. So medical discrimination, I think, is something that we do not talk about, and I'm glad that we're able to bring this bring this topic to discussion.
1: Before we go off that topic, there is a myth that black people experience pain different than white people; that we can handle more pain. And that is a myth and that definitely ties into um, this medical bias that we're talking about, especially with pregnant women. They complain, you know, that they're feeling pain and nothing is done about it.
2: I think that myth that you talk about, um, it it transcends from slavery is because we were able to endure so much as a people during slavery. Oh, a little chest pain, a little, a little chest pain is not going to kill you, which is why that we see that black people, especially black women, are of a higher percentage to have heart attacks because our chest pains or whatever pain we may be experiencing is not taking as taken as seriously.
1: Exactly. And while we're talking about um, structural racism, systematic racism, I also want to talk about mass incarceration. And before I go into the definitions and everything, I just want to talk about an example for those of you who might not know what mass incarceration is. So, one that I'm looking at right now is we know uh, marijuana is being legalized throughout all states. Even here in Indiana, you can legally buy Delta-8 THC. And while that is good, you know, I'm all for decriminalizing marijuana, I am very, very upset that these people that are opening up these marijuana shops and these uh, dispensaries are white people and that there are black people sitting in jail for selling dime bags. That is really upsetting to me. So you have white people mass producing marijuana, making millions of dollars, and then you have black men and women sitting in jail with, of course, we know the judge gave them harsher sentences. That's a story for a whole nother day. And um, yeah, that's an example of mass incarceration. That's the example that I just wanted to give. And basically what mass incarceration is, it is such structural racism that essentially means the system of public policies, institutional practices and other norms that work in reinforcing ways to per- perpetuate sorry, racial inequality. So the criminal justice system is perhaps the clearest example of structural racism in the United States. The United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world and the overwhelming burden of Contact with the system has fallen on communities of color, especially African-Americans. So just to throw out a statistic so you can maybe visualize it a little more. African-Americans are incarcerated in state prisons across the country at more than five times the rate of whites and at least 10 times the rate in five states. A recent report by two sociologists showed that white federal judges are about 4 times more likely to dismiss race discrimination cases outright. Another analysis found that they are half as likely as black federal judges to rule in favor of people people who say that they have experienced Racial harass- harassment in the workplace. Since African American judges have likely experienced discrimination themselves, they can recognize more complex and subtle forms of racial harassment. So, earlier when I was saying that white judges give harsher sentences, not to just black people, people of color in general, it's because they just can't understand racial harassment. I mean, if I'm being honest, white people aren't racially harassed, so when you come when you go to court and you know you're saying that this happened in the workplace or this happened with the police officer, maybe he just follows you and da, da da da, they're not gonna understand because they don't experience it, so that's why the statistic is saying that if you have a judge of color or an African American judge, they're more likely
0: to give you a lighter sentence, tying off of that um janae that definitely ties into what we said earlier about representation so you know black judges give less harsher sentences because they know what it's like to be black again representation is important unless you've experienced it yourself how could you possibly understand that's not something that you can explain to someone that's not something that can be easily put into words so it's one of those things where unless you experience it you're never gonna actually know how it feels
2: There's a point that Janae brought up in her earlier discussion that um, I absolutely agree with is that you see that white people do the exact same thing and either don't get time for it or have, either don't get time for it or get a less harsher sentence than black people. Um, And while these two cases that I'm about to bring up are absolutely not the same, it still goes along with your point. Dylan Roof, who was the murderer of nine people in the Charleston, um, incident. I think what angered me about that is because we see black people who you don't even black people who are victims of police brutality, who were unarmed most of the time, they are kit, shot and killed. You not only gave Dylan Roof water, you took him to get something to eat. Yeah, you calmly disarmed him. And then you have Tatiana Arada, who was one of the main protesters um, in California, who's a protest leader, who was one of the uh, she's 20 years old. She was uh, one of the main protesters in California doing everything that was happening this summer, who was arrested and faces 25 years in jail for public disruption. And I want to know where do we see, and that's where we go to talk about systematic racism within our justice system is where is this balance at one? On one hand, you have a murderer, a murderer. I even think about, um, what's his name? Kyle Rittenhouse. Is that his name? Mm -hmm. I even think about Kyle Rittenhouse, who. Caused a pub, If we're going to talk about public disturbance, who caused a public disturbance across state lines? He was a minor who brought a gun across state lines. I'm tired of hearing people say he was protecting his state. How are you going to protect the state that you don't live in? Make it make sense. So you got one person, one white man, and I'm going to call him a child because that's what he is. You have one white minor who brings a gun across state lines and causes a public disturbance because he's trying to fight against fight against people who are fighting for their lives and yet you have another student who is fighting for the fighting for the lives of black people and she faces 25 years of life and you have christian people which is a whole nother subject for another day you have christian christian all lives matter people who are raising money to get kyle rittenhouse a lawyer where's the balance
1: And then I just want to talk on that because I did a paper on the Dylan situation and that was just so disgusting that they got him water, took him to Burger King after he just killed, I don't even know how many people were in that church, but it had to be like eight or nine people Mm -hmm. with a gun. And then the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, that also upsets me because he also killed two people and I don't see anything being done about that. And I, I also saw the GoFundMe and he raised like half a million dollars and I don't understand. I really don't understand.
2: When we continue to talk about um, continue to talk about racism on a spectrum, I also want to think about workplace discrimination specifically when it comes to hair. Um, in 2019, California what became the first state to outlaw racial discrimination based on hair, and we see this. Uh, we have seen this a lot within the past couple of years. Is that we have seen young black girls being kicked out of school because of their hair. Um, I remember there. I cannot think of his name at this present moment, but there was a black um, male student who had dreads and they refused to let him walk across the stage unless he cut his hair and he said he wasn't going to do it which I wouldn't either his dreads were long I would not cut that either that took a long time to grow Um, but um, it was was great for California to pass that law but at the same time for me I felt like it was disheartening and I in no way want to seem like that I'm ungrateful for progress but when it's 2019 and this progress is coming so slow yeah I'm a little irritated about it Because the fact that, and this, I guess, can go into cultural appropriation, is that black women have had these hair, black people, let me put it that way. I think this kind of goes into cultural appropriation because black people have had these hairstyles for years. We have had our afros. We have had our our weave and our wigs. We have had this for years. But when we do it, oh, it's ghetto. That's not appropriate for the work or the school place. It's not fashionable. It's this and it's that. But when non-white celebrities do it, and I ain't going to drop no names, which y'all know, I'm sure pe- people who are listening right now probably know who I'm talking about. But when non-white celebrities have the cornrows or I think one of these celebrities called them boxer braids, when we have, when they have those things, it's marketable. It's fashionable. And I, um, there's a quote. I saw it on Twitter, and I actually kind of want to get, it, get on the T-shirt because it's so true, is that ghetto is what black people have that has not been marketed yet. And when I saw that quote, I was like, you know, yo, you write anything that black people have innovated or created. I even think about what music, um, and this is kind of getting off my topic, but anything that black people have created from jazz to gospel to rock and roll, which a lot of people don't know about to even heavy metal and punk guess black people created that. Everybody said that, Oh, that's stupid. That's crazy. I even think about his name, little Richard, who everybody knows as the architect of rock and roll created this sound that today, we account Elvis Presley for. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Elvis Presley. But Elvis Presley is not the architect of that. But getting back to hair, as I was talking about, um, that brings me into my next point. That is not just hair. When black girls and black women are being taken out of school or fired from their workplace because of what their hairstyle, it's not just hair for me. And I also want to bring up the point that many of the time, a lot of people will say, well, you're trying to Flat, not flat iron your hair or wear weave to look like white women. I want this to be pointed out that, one, weave is a historical thing. We've been doing this as pre-colonial Africa. This weave and this flat iron and this perming of hair was assimilation for protection. Because in the early 1950s and 60s, this wasn't something that we were able we weren't able to wear our natural hair in the workplace or in the school place without something looking wrong. So um, I just wanted to put that out there that it's not just hair. This is our culture. This is something that we embody every day.
0: And going off of what you said about how it was a protection, I think about how natural black hair has caused people of color so much difficulty within the school system as well as the employment system. So black women feel pressure from employers and from school officials who don't view their locks or their braids as The neat professional hairstyle they require or they might see the looks as a political or aggressive statement or as a signal that the wearer isn't interested in fitting in so then that's where it ties into like this is a protection this is something we have to do in order to be respected as much as white people Um, and then going back to the school system parents are facing problems with raising their children to embrace their natural hair yet having the school system penalize their children for doing so. And adults are also having difficulties obtaining a job and feeling comfortable at their workplace because companies often impose unfair grooming standards. And these standards often are not built for black women or black people. So I also want to say tying off of, um, you know, black hair. I also want to say that there are black Latinos. So. Chelsea mentioned this earlier, there are Afro-Latinos, Afro-Latinas, and they are definitely part of the black community as well. And that, you know, goes into intersectionality. So I want to address this topic of intersectionality, which is a topic we've brought up before on this podcast. So in case you didn't know, intersectionality is basically the cumulative way in which people, especially those from marginalized communities, face multiple forms of discrimination that combine, overlap, or intersect, creating a completely different experience. So when different forms of discrimination overlap, they don't add, they multiply. So this, of course, ties into something that, again, has been said before, and that that is that being black is not monolithic. There is no one way to be black. Like all people, black people are individuals. They don't all fit into one box that can be checked. There are differences in religion, politics, country of origin, skin tone, parental guardianship caretakers, education, citizenship status, employment status, criminal records, sexuality, gender identity, and more. Um, And again, I want to reiterate, there are black people in the Latinx community, so the multiple dimensions of Hispanic identity, they reflect the long colonial history of Latin America during which mixing occurred among indigenous Americans, white Europeans, slaves from Africa, and Asians. In Latin America's colonial period, about 15 times as many African slaves were taken to Spanish and Portuguese colonies than to the U.S., Today, about 130 million people of African descent live in Latin America, making up roughly a quarter of the total population. Um, and that's an, a statistic according to the estimates from the Project on Ethnicity and Race in Latin America by Princeton University. So this is this is um, a fact. About 25% of Latin Americans are black, and that's something that we don't talk about as well so black community is also part of the latino community as well so there it's intersectionality it's not just one you're not a box that can be checked
2: absolutely and i'm glad you brought that up because i think that there's this this idea that the transatlantic slave trade was um a a two-stop a three-stop shop you know you got the slaves from africa pit-stopped in Europe to do whatever he had to do to um to grab the products or whatever and then you dropped them off in the United States and then it was the triangle all over again when if you think about it black people were not enslaved people were not just dropped off in the United States they went to the islands they went to South America they went to this part of Latin America that bridges between the United States and South America so like you said, 25% of the Latinx community is black. And I think, um, I have a cousin actually who is, um, her mother's Mexican and my uncle who, um, passed away is, is black. Um, and I remember having a conversation with her one day, uh, one time when I visited her in New Mexico that she never felt like she was wanted by either side. It was like, she was too black for um, the Latinx community, which there is this very long history of anti-blackness within the Latinx community, which we could spend a whole hour talking about. But she felt like she was also too Mexican for the black community. Um, and so you you have this divide where it was like, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Who do I belong to? And why won't either accept me? And there's sometimes in the black community, you know, we reject our own. I often think about this situation that I had with an individual where we were talking about the Afro-Latino community and it was like, well, how black are they? How can we devalue somebody else's blackness? How do we do that? Because just, just as clear as day, just because I come from two black parents doesn't make me any more black than, than my cousin who is Mexican and black. She still experiences things as a black, as a Afro Latino woman. So there in no way can we devalue somebody else's blackness just because their experience is not our own. And I'm really glad that you brought that point up, Deborah.
0: Yeah. And I also kind of want to talk about the transatlantic slave trade. So the transatlantic slave trade was at the heart of structural inequalities and systemic racism. Slavery's long legal existence created the American caste system that endures today, one that maintains a false white superiority and black inferiority built on an unfair education system, unfair unemployment system, and social institutions that support this notion while appropriating black language, music, and fashion. It contributed to the poverty, social exclusion, and violence that affects people of African descent at disproportionately high levels. And this of course includes things like the school to prison pipeline Um, but we don't like to talk about it Um, and according to michael samanga who is an adjunct professor of african-american studies at georgia state university there are two reasons why we don't like to talk about slavery the first is that it's a subject that makes us have to face the ugliness of our history against the beauty of american history it forces us to then commit to structural changes that the country has not yet gotten ready to address changes having to do with discriminatory practices, and unequal education, unequal employment, unequal housing, and how we teach our history without including all Americans. Talking about slavery would require us to embrace a completely different American nar- narrative, and we're not ready to let go
2: of the old one. Um I'm really glad that you mentioned mentioned that because I think there there's this um, there's this notion that with people that Because slavery, because the civil rights movement, because civil rights was so long ago that that stuff is obviously not happening now. And um, if you look at historical adversity, which that includes slavery, which includes sharecropping, race based exclusion from health, educational, social and economic resources that translate into socioeconomic disparities experienced by um, black people today. So all the things that happen and the 1800s and in the 1960s that is still happening today. It just has changed its form. And so I even think about slavery and the policing system today. No, you cannot put somebody in chains in their arms and their feet and beat them with a whip and call them a slave. No, you cannot do that into the in 2020. You can't do that. But I can definitely handcuff you and give you 25 years to life for something that really should be considered a misdemeanor. I can definitely do that. I can definitely put you in private systems and create a system and create a profit off of you as a black man and woman and so yes slavery was in the 1600s yes Jim Crow was in the 50s and the 60s but mass incarceration gentrification police brutality that exists today in 2020 it has just changed its form and changed different names we want to address
0: the statement all lives matter those arguing that the movement should be called all lives matter which is stating the obvious must know that it dilutes the fight of an oppressed community because remember that not all lives face discrimination on the basis of skin color. And at no point does a black lives mean only black lives matter. It's not a matter of only, but two. black lives matter, too.
2: I tried not to really talk about all lives matter because I feel like I go in a tangent whenever I do. So um, I would just pose this question. Where was all lives matter from 1619 to 1968? Where was all lives matter during the transatlantic slave trade, all the way to Jim Crow, all the way to Trayvon Martin, to Sandra Bland, to Breonna Taylor, to Ahmaud Aubrey to Drayshawn Reed. Where was this all lives matter then? Because I, I find it interesting that all lives matter only when we shout black lives matter. When, we scream all, when people scream all lives matter, it's only to deter and to distract people from hearing black lives matter. And let's be clear that if black lives truly did matter, we wouldn't have to shout it. If black lives truly did matter, Drayshawn Reed's murderer would have had a would have had a conviction. If Black Lives Matter, Sandra Bland would be alive. If Black Lives Truly did matter, Trayvon Martin would have made it home. Elijah McClain would have been at home with his family. If black lives truly did matter. If black lives matter, Dr. King would not have been shot and killed. If Black Lives Matter, Rosa Parks would have been able to sit wherever she wanted to sit. So where where was All Lives Matter? during these most pivotal moments in American history.
0: That being said, we're going to go ahead and end the episode here. I just want to remind everyone what we said throughout this entire episode. Black lives still matter. They mattered hundreds of years ago, and they still matter today, and they're going to continue to matter in the future. We need to advocate for that truth.
2: Yeah, just to make my last um, statement, if y'all don't hear nothing else I hear it that I said on this podcast, let's um, hear this. Black lives mattered in 1619. They matter in 2020. And they're going to matter years when all of us are dead and gone and our children and our children's children are living. Black lives matter. They still matter. They matter internationally. They matter nationally. They matter everywhere and your vigilance should not stop now that the summer is over your vigilance should not stop now that Biden and Kamala are elected because we still have even more work to do now so celebrate that victory but also know that this administration got work to do of their own like don't be oblivious to the fact that this administration that is coming up in 2021 has so much work to do in regards for the black community Um, and I want to leave you with a quote um, by Ella Baker until the killing of black men black mother's sons becomes as important to the country as the killing of white mother's sons. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens. So I want to put a little spin on that until the killing of black women and men, black mother's children becomes as important to this country as the killing of white mother's sons and daughters. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until that happens. So do not let your vigilance stop now your vigilance has to continue. Cause let me tell you something. My son, my daughter will not be a hashtag. My son and my daughter will not be talking about the same things that I'm talking about. Don't let your vigilance stop today. Continue to fight. Our lives begin to end the day. We become silent about things that matter. Black lives still matter today. Everybody.